and I'm just really looking forward to just being outdoors. I don't know if you guys enjoy the outdoors like I do, but I just love going outside, and I love being in nature and seeing all the, the beautiful things that nature has. Um, I love just experiencing the, the, the birds that are singing and the smells even of the flowers, and I love just the, the, the beautiful deep turquoise color of the ocean that I never even knew existed before I moved here to Cayman. Um, I love watching birds fly, and I love just watching even the small insects crawl around. And I even love the, the, sh the, the shining, shimmering scale of a snake. Don't you guys just love that too? You see, that, that's what I thought. Um, a lot of people detest snakes. And when I was a child, I was actually quite fascinated by reptiles. I loved them all. I actually had a lot of them, too. Um, I loved, you know, lizards, turtles, snakes. I even had some amphibians, too. I, I just, I loved it. I loved being around them. I loved catching them. I loved, you know, keeping them. But, you know, here in Cayman, you really don't have to worry about snakes. There are a few snakes, but did you know that there are no venomous snakes in Cayman? So you don't have to worry about them at all. So you should love them, right? Because they eat rodents and pests. They're great. But you know, I come from Georgia. And I don't know if you've, you've been to the southeast US, but in Georgia, there are 10 species of venomous snakes. And before I get into the message, I just wanted to give a nice announcement for everybody, just in case they travel to the southeast, to let them know what are the venomous snakes that you need to stay away from. <laughs> So, um, in case you didn't know, we have the rattlesnake. Now, the rattlesnake is a snake that it's obvious that this is a bad snake, okay? It has a rattle, it shakes its rattle when it's angry, you want to stay away from that snake, okay? The cottonmouth is another really bad snake, okay? Venomous, it has a really thick body, and they're usually really dark colored, but they have this bright white mouth, that's why they call it a cottonmouth. The copperhead is a snake with a triangular pattern, really beautiful snake. Uh, it is beautiful, Javon. And it has a copper head, and it, but it's, it's a really nasty pit viper. But so there's this one snake, though, that I really needed to tell you guys about because it doesn't fit the mold for a scary, venomous nightmare. It's uh, a snake that actually has the second deadliest venom in the world. It's a snake that when it strikes you, there is very little pain at the mark where it hits you. But a couple hours later, you can have complete paralysis, complete respiratory failure, and death. <laughs> its bright colors and curious patterns should warn everybody ar around to stay away from it. But the eastern coral snake is coincidentally the majority of the victims that get bit by the eastern coral snake are because they are picking it up and playing with the snake. Now, why would somebody do that? You see, the eastern coral snake, with the deadliest venom this side of the world, looks very, very similar to the scarlet king snake, a common non-venomous snake that people actually like having around where I'm from. I know those crazy people. Um, and people that, that usually get bit by that snake, they think that it's the king snake, but it's actually a coral snake. And it's, it's, from a kid, I was taught a certain rhyme. It was called, red touches yellow can kill a fellow. Red touches black is a friend of Jack. <laughs> you had to remember that because 
You had to know which snake it was. So they look similar, okay? One brings and should bring fear and death, <laughs> while the other is a harmless snake that eats rodents, and it actually eats other snakes, king snakes. You were learning a lot about snakes today, and we're about to stop this. But king snakes are actually one of the only snakes that can eat venomous snakes, and they are immune to the poison of venomous snakes. So where am I going with this? Um, it doesn't take a biologist or a scholar or a theologian to look around in the world and notice that there are many beautiful things that are around us. But I believe that we can all agree that there is something awry in creation. Um, there's so much beauty, there's, but things aren't as perfect as they should be. Why do we have fear? And why do we have suffering? And why do we have death? Why is there poison and death in such a beautiful world? Why is it that we experience cancer and hatred and divorce and envy, wars and injustice? So many things, they bring sorrow and they bring pain and they bring fear. And many times we are convinced that, that, that we are chasing something that is good for us and then we find out later that that was a coral snake <laughs> and it ends up hurting us so bad. And life is very rarely free of suffering, and Jesus knew that. And Jesus wanted to instruct his disciples in how suffering can, in fact, turn into joy. It sounds crazy, but Jesus experienced pain and suffering like we never will. And he addresses that the pain that we will go through in this world with his disciples. So we're going to turn to that page um, in John 16, if you have a Bible. I invite you to, to turn with me to John 16. We're going to jump around a little in the Bible, but John 16 is our main focus verse. Um, we're going to go to verse 20. It should come up behind me, so I'm going to go ahead and read. Verse 20 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer rem remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You know, the disciples, they were, they were about to lose their leader. They were about to watch him be publicly humiliated, and yet Jesus encourages them to just wait and see that their sorrow would soon turn to joy. But how could God work through that? It's, it's quite obvious that the disciples were puzzled by Jesus' statement. And, I mean, because really, how are they supposed to follow a leader that was about to be killed on a cross? Why did they have to weep and lament? Why couldn't Jesus just fix the problem, you know, just like he did with, with a hungry crowd and with five loaves and two fish and boom, everybody had food or the friend that had died and he just called out his name, Lazarus, come out and Lazarus was raised from the dead. Why couldn't Jesus just fix it without actually having to do this? Couldn't they have the baby without the birth pains? <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? But Jesus held what was eternal higher than what was temporary. 
So we should learn how to hold what is eternal higher than what is just temporary. Jesus wants to show us here the great key to having joy, even in suffering. Don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't encouraging us to go out and just suffer as much as we want, to start a movement of just trying to hurt ourselves and suffer. That's not what he's saying here, but he doesn't shy away from suffering either. And he shows that we can have joy in the middle of suffering. If you're like me, you don't like to suffer. And just this week, I, I was feeling terrible. I went to the doctor. They said, you have strep throat. And I, I said, no, what? No, I, God, I don't have time for this. I have to preach this Sunday. I have so many things that are going to happen. I need you to take this away so that I can do what you call me to do. And we, we tend to do that. We tend to want to remove suffering from our lives so that we can have joy and follow God. But that should never be a limitation. Suffering was never there for us to limit what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to follow God. In John 16, Jesus is, is preparing his disciples for not only the most excruciating event in his life, but I imagine it was one of the most confusing and painful times in his disciples' lives as well. I mean, could you imagine the leader, their Messiah, was going to be publicly crucified, publicly murdered, and the crowds loved it. The cross, it was, it was a symbol of shame, a warning for those entering Roman-governed lands. It was a declaration that Rome was in control, that they were in charge, and they were the ones that gave fear, but not forever. Something amazing happened there. And the cross was used for shame and to punish the worst of the worst. But now it was going to be a symbol for life, for forgiveness. Once a symbol for death and condemnation would now be a symbol for love. And if we could just take a moment to realize what Jesus, Son of God, came and did for us. He was willing to come down to this earth as a baby, to live a humble life, to experience everything we did, yet he never sinned. He looked just like me and you. He looked just like a sinner, yet he was very different because he never sinned. You know, Romans 8.3 reminds us that Jesus was sent to the world in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like the rest of the world, yet he gave life, not death. He gave hope, and not despair. He gave me redemption instead of the rightful condemnation I earned with my own sin. You know, the cross was an instrument of pain and of shame, yet Jesus on the cross is our symbol of victory and of freedom. You know, we all needed this antidote for the sin that was running rampant in, in this world and in our lives, and he was willing to take my sin and give me life. There's something special about this man, and I hope you understand that. He was a man, but he was also the son of God. And if, if you were to just look at, onto a sacrifice of a common criminal, nothing were to happen. But if you were to turn to Jesus on the cross and you were to look at his sacrifice, you would realize that he was not just a mere man. I want to read uh, Hebrews 12. because so I think it, it gives, I love that we can examine the cross as it was happening, after it happened, and even before it happened. Um, in Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 2, it says this, that therefore, 
since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now, or seated at, the right hand of the throne of God. Now, there's two points here that I want to draw out. The first is that when it says that we need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. Now, this sin that clings so closely, it's the, the word there, it's talking about it encircles us and it entangles us and it trips us up. It's like it's constricting us. We need to identify sin for what it is. A lot of times we, we fantasize about sin, <laughs> And we need to actually realize that it's like a venomous snake that is clinging on to us, and it is killing us, and it is going to choke us. So we need to lay that aside. We need to run without that hanging on to us. And the second point is that Jesus' joy was found in the completion of the Father's will, not in momentary comfort and pleasure. I mean, think about it. It says, for the joy that he was, that set before him endured the cross. Are we talking about the same event here? I mean, what could be joyous in such a horrible event? I'm not going to go into detail on all the physical abuse of suffering, of what, it, what happens in a crucifixion. I think that you've probably either seen the film or you've heard a message before on just how horrible that abuse was. But what I didn't realize until this week was just how much shame he had to take as well. And, and I, I read this, this article by John Piper, and I'm, I'm going to take an excerpt from it. It says that shame was taking everything Jesus had on this earth. His friends left him in shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming mockery. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. His glorious dignity gave way to the utterly undignified, degrading reflexes of the grunting and groaning of his last breaths. And I think about that. And I think about Jesus approaching the cross. And all this shame and all this pain and all this torture is going on in him. And yet he, he can focus on the joy that's in front of him. And, and Piper continues on thinking that, that Jesus could have had a conversation like this. It says, listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think you have power, but compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, that is my power, not you, shame. You are worthless and you are powerless. You think you can distract me? I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? You are ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished now. You cover me now as with a shroud, before you can say, so there I will throw you off like a filthy rag and I will put on my royal robe. You think you're great because even last night you made my disciples run away? You're a fool, shame. 
You're a despicable fool, and that abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, and these tools of yours, they are all my sacred suffering. And I will save my disciples, not destroy them. You are a fool, and your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. You know, when I read that, it was, I was just filled with so much thankfulness for God. You know, so much of my life and our lives are, are dictated by the avoidance of suffering and of trying to, to just put ourselves the most distance possible from any pain, from any suffering, from any fear. But thank you, Jesus, that you did not shy away from the cross. The one and only sacrifice was the one and only payment for my sins. And in that process, my Lord's suffering was turned to joy. And it was considered a joy because it was the completion of God's plan to redeem and reach out to humanity that had been poisoned. Church, it had been poisoned by sin. We poisoned ourselves with our own pleasure and pride. And even from the Garden of Eden, we saw Satan lie, deceive humanity, infecting our good world with sin. And now we live a life where suffering is common. So I think what would be helpful is for us to examine what, what should our response be to suffering? Because we know what Jesus did. We know that he persisted and he pushed through and, and he was able to do that. But I know I don't have the same strength as Jesus. <laughs> but what should I do whenever I am in the middle of suffering? What is it that, that my response should be? You know, suffering is difficult, but a response to suffering can actually be a blessing. I want to pull up an older um, story in the Bible that's found in Numbers 21. This might be a pretty familiar verse for some of you. Um, I think it has a lot to do with Easter and the cross, and we're going to read it because we see, we see a group of people, we see Israel that had left Egypt. They were suffering as slaves in Egypt, and they said, God, please save us. Moses came, and he, he released them. Or, you know, they, they were able to, to get them out of Egypt, and they were wandering in the wilderness, and they were tired, and they were suffering, and they were complaining. This is, this is the story that picks up. Numbers 21, verse 4. For Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Well, that was an odd event that unfolded in the desert. But what we see from this story is that suffering can either 
bring you closer to God or can drive you further away. But you are the one that decides that. The desert is a place that God tends to to bring people. (laughs) He brings them there to train them. He brings them there so that you draw closer to him. But Israel's suffering and Israel's time in the desert turned into complaining. And their difficulties caused them to even despise Moses and God. They, they said that this, this wonderful gift that God had given them, daily bread, daily manna raining from heaven, they said, they said that it was worthless and that they loathed it. They longed for the past pleasures of Egypt and they didn't see that their time in the wilderness was a training ground. They They complained. And venomous snakes came, and they they bit people, and naturally they said, God, take these snakes away. But, you know, isn't that our standard response to suffering, to pain, to fear? God, take this away. (laughs) If you're good, then remove this from my life, God. If you are so powerful, then why don't you just heal me? But God responds to their prayer, interestingly enough, not by removing the snakes. Instead, he told Moses to make a bronze snake, and this this snake was in the likeness of a fiery serpent. And the shining serpent must be placed on a wooden pole and lifted up high so that people could see it. The fangs of the fiery serpents, they were still very much at work. They were biting people and infecting people and making their lives miserable, but the people, what they had to do was they had to turn away from those fiery serpents. (laughs) And they had to turn their eyes upon the bronze snake. Flee from sin. Run to God. (laughs) If we as a people would turn our eyes upon Jesus and not even on our own comfort, (laughs) if we would turn our eyes to the cross and what the Son of God did for us, instead of just trying to get away from pain and get away from suffering, if we would just look to him, even in the desert, even when there's venomous snakes around us, we are healed. You know, there was only one bronze snake, (laughs) and that snake was the only cure that those people had when they were bitten. Nothing else had the power to give them life. They had to turn their eyes to the bronze snake, and it was, a, it was just, I hope you can see it. It was just a shadow. It was just a foreshadowing of what God was going to do through the cross. It wasn't a magic stick, and it wasn't that the snake was, was magical in a sense. It was, just, it was a symbol for what Jesus was going to come and do for his people, that he would come in the likeness of sinful flesh and he would be the greatest sacrifice that the world was going to witness, the one that could take away our sins so that we could come before God and be considered righteous. I hope you can see the big picture and that you can see even why Jesus followed God's perfect plan even when there was so much suffering in his life even when it was excruciating, the shame that was being put on him. 
He followed the Father's beautifully tragic plan of executing the Son of God before scoffers and sinners because that was the only way. It was the only way that could give me forgiveness, <laughs> could give me righteousness in front of the throne of God. I want to finish up going back to John 16. And it says in verse 32 through 33, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, I know it's not easy. Jesus knows it's not easy. <laughs> he experienced it. But don't give up. Don't turn your face from God. His body, it was put in a tomb, but it didn't stay there. He was raised from the dead, and we serve a risen Savior. And by his sacrifice, we can now approach the throne of God with boldness. And in this week in particular, we're, we're celebrating Easter, and we're celebrating the resurrected Savior, the one who triumphed over death and the grave. But let us not forget the cost the cost that he carried for us. And although it's overshadowed by eternal joy, our Savior took the weight of our sin, the punishment that we deserved, and he took it alone, leaving him alone to die a shameful death on the cross. You know, it's, it's not wrong to not want to suffer. <laughs> Jesus himself asked to the Father, Father, if there's any way for this cup of suffering to be taken from me, please, but then he said, but not my will, let your will be done. He turned his eyes to the Father. He turned his eyes to the Father's will, even when the suffering was right there in front of him and it was almost unbearable. He turned his eyes to the Father's will. You know, if I'm honest, I don't know why some people seem to suffer more than others. I don't know why certain people get cancer. I don't know why certain people get sick. I don't know why certain people experience unimaginable loss and pain, gut-wrenching pain. I don't wish suffering upon anyone, but if you are suffering, and if you've prayed for God to take it away, and he hasn't. Maybe you should pray that he would be exalted through it. And I know that's difficult to hear. Because <laughs> we all want to be healed completely, but we need to realize that we're only here for a short time. And he has healed us eternally in heaven. I can only stand here and, and encourage you in the Father's eternal love that overshadows any pain that we can feel on this earth. And I do pray for God's healing. I pray that he would move and work and, and, and lead you. But I also pray that God would be glorified through all of our pain and trials and suffering. 
Because even in the suffering, Jesus had joy. He had joy because he knew he was following God's good plan, the good plan that carried my sins to the cross and the good plan that gave life through the death of God's son. Why don't we take a little time to pray? God, we, we stand before you and God, there's, there's many things that, that I don't understand with suffering. And Lord, I know, I know that you do. <laughs> Lord, I pray for each person here that feels like they are suffering, that feels like they, that they've had enough. <laughs> Maybe they're confused as to why they, they keep dealing with the same issue over and over and they, they can't seem to find healing from it, God. I do pray for healing for that person. I pray that, that you would work mightily in their life. God, I, I believe you can do that. But Lord, even more so, we, we want you to work through us. And that's even in our suffering, God. So I pray for those that feel like they're confused or maybe angry at you. God, that you would just show them your love and show them just how you've been so good all through the course of humanity and in the course of their life. We thank you for the cross, and we thank you that Jesus was able to, to take on suffering and to, to continue forward even in shame, and he did it for the joy of knowing that he was completing your good work. So Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us, that you would complete the good work that you have started within us, God, and that you would give us strength and give us courage, God, and, and let us turn our eyes to you. And we come before you now. We come before your throne, and we, we worship you, and we're so thankful for all that you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.